As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Violent crime in Milwaukee is literally hitting home. 27 people have been killed in domestic violence-related incidents just this year. A domestic crisis worsened by the COVID-19 pandemic. The increased stress, the anger, the intolerance, the mental health problems. It's really hitting black and brown women especially. A new report shows there is a way to maximize safety for victims. Things like this work, but they need resources. If they're identified in time. It's so hard for a victim to even receive services at this point. The sooner we can get there, the better for that survivor. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and we have a special guest on the podcast today. The executive director of Sojourner Family Peace Center, Carmen Petrie, is making her Open Record debut. Good morning, Carmen. It's great to have you on. Good morning, Brian. It's good to be here. Good to see you again. Good to hear you. Well, we have talked so many times over the years about the important subject of domestic violence. First time I've had you on the podcast, and I'm really grateful because I love this forum. We can talk in in much more depth. We get beyond just a handful of sound bites, which is always what we're limited to on the air. And this is obviously a very important topic. Earlier this week, uh, oh, I should say, by the way, for, for our listeners, we're recording this episode on Thursday, August 4th for release the same day. It was earlier this week that Sojourner Family Peace Center released a five-year report on the work of the Milwaukee County Domestic Violence High-Risk Team. And that report found that victims of domestic violence who are at the greatest risk of being killed by an intimate partner or family member can be saved if they're identified and connected with services as early as possible. And there's still work to be done on that part. We're going to talk about that. Before we get there, though, Carmen, I just want to let our listeners know a little bit more about you and about Sojourner. Uh, tell me about yourself and, and about what Sojourner is. Well, you know, I've had the privilege of doing this work for 37 years in the community, 20 of those years at Sojourner at the Family Peace Center. We're a co-located model of service on the corner of Sixth and Walnut. We're one of eight programs here in Milwaukee. Um, there are seven other culturally specific programs working just as hard as we are here in the Milwaukee area. We um, have 14 co-located partners in our building. As I said, on the corner of Sixth and Walnut, we have a wraparound model of service. Our shelter is located uh, on the corner of Sixth and Walnut. We have an education center as well. As well, We've been there since 2016, serving before COVID a little over 12,000 clients. Under COVID, we dipped to about 8,100. So we're working hard to keep our doors open, getting the message out that there's help available and we're here to serve people who are struggling. I know the, the idea of it, it's a one-stop shopping place. For anyone who's been to the courthouse complex, you can you, you know that you can walk all over the place or be sent to this building and that building for one service versus another. I'm sure that for someone who's dealing with a really traumatic and stressful 
and, and dangerous potentially situation that that can just add to the stress of having to find all of these various services. Absolutely. The center was built in service to making life easier for survivors and families impacted by domestic violence. You know, when we first opened in 2016, in the fall of 2015, there was a, a high-profile case. Um, wrapping our arms around that family would have taken about three to four weeks, and within eight hours, we were able to serve the family, get counseling, let the let the children know that the parents had passed, give the grandparents some uh, counseling, talk with the school social worker, meet with the DA, all within about six to eight hours. Before the Peace Center, that would have taken, as I said, two to three weeks at the absolute worst time in your life when a homicide has occurred. So the model is is, uh, designed for us to come together and wrap our arms around you. I used to work at the courthouse many, many years ago, and it is a hard place to navigate. And We should make life easier for survivors and families when they're struggling and afraid. So that's really the mission of the Family Peace Center and the partners who are co-located there. And and that existed prior to the creation of the high-risk team. But let's talk about that. The Milwaukee County Domestic Violence High-Risk Team, what is it and why was it created? You know, I want to peel it back a little bit. We started really examining homicides with the work of Dr. Mallory O'Brien in 2006, where uh, her work in the Homicide Review Commission allowed us to start to look at what had happened in instances of homicide to see what we could learn um, for for future work. You know, what are the things that needed to be changed? What are the trends? What's happening in these cases? So I really want to give her credit. Uh, In 2005, 2006, we started to look at these trends. In... um, We adopted the LAP protocol, which is 11 questions that law enforcement asks at the scene. And uh, the intent was always to move to a high-risk team. We were just waiting for funding. So uh, this week when we announced the report, we launched the team in, in February of 2017. There was a young woman who was murdered in um, January of 17. The case escalated so quickly within three weeks. It happened. Uh, there were incidents in four different Milwaukee jurisdictions and she was ultimately murdered in West Dallas right after uh, January 1st. And we said to ourselves, you know what, we can no longer wait for funding. We have to convene this team. And every single partner um, has contributed time and talent without additional resources. So what the team is, it is, um, we have founding members, the Department of Correction, the District Attorney's Office, Sojourner Family Peace Center, and um, Milwaukee Police Department, Department of Corrections, DA's Office, and Sojourner are the four founding members of the team. What they do is they meet twice a week and they review cases. They look at cases to see um, um, how to prevent that homicide from happening. So any case that screens in high risk gets forwarded to the team and then there's some automatic case criteria that moves a case into into a staffing. So give me an example what 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 would a what would a case, a typical case you might review look like that that you know might end up being screened as high risk. Any case where a weapon was involved, we're most concerned about guns, but knives, if there's use of weapons or threats to kill or the survivor's intuition, 
anything that involved a shooting, a stabbing, a sexual assault, strangulation. The hard thing about strangulation is it's so prevalent in almost all cases that we're only able to staff cases where strangulation um, has resulted in the loss of bowel movements, um, strangulation with the use of an object, any fire or burning or use of water to hurt a person, use of a car, those would automatically be screened in to the team to review once a week. They meet twice, Tuesdays and Thursdays. There's a lot of prep that goes into the cases, a lot of information gathering. Then the team meets, they discuss the case to see where they can leverage and add some safety and try to prevent that homicide from happening. When I read the high-risk report, the five-year report, uh, one thing that stood out to me, and I also was just trying to learn more about what are these high-risk teams, I looked at sort of the model behind this because it's not just Milwaukee that's doing this. This is happening in other places as well. The idea behind the model seems to be founded in the notion that domestic violence homicides are in not all cases, but in many cases, preventable and predictable. Um, and so is is that really the foundational idea that if we know about these signs, these symptoms early enough that we can intervene before it escalates to a homicide? Yes, I'd say we believe that every case has red flags. And if we um, can notice the red flags, which we try to do with the team, the LAP protocol gets implemented by law enforcement on the scene of every incident in Milwaukee County. And, and what is that again? You said that's a series of questions that are asked at the scene? It's 11 questions. And then there's a 12th question that an officer can ask, which is, is there anything else that concerns you um, that we haven't talked about? But there's 11 questions on the lab protocol, but it's founded in this idea that every case has red flags, and if we can pull out those red flags and talk to survivors about the lethality that they face, we believe it makes a difference. When we say to a survivor, when an officer says on the scene, Brian, people in your circumstances are more likely to be murdered, I'm very concerned about you, here's the red flags that I see. When an advocate says that to you and the district attorney says it, Survivors have said that they hear it differently, which is important. They understand the situation differently. And the red flags are certainly the things I've talked about. Strangulation, the use of an object, strangulation to the point of losing your bowel or bladder, any stabbing, shooting, sexual assault, burning. You know, those are red flags uh, that we're looking for in these cases. Also, you know, we want to emphasize the intuition of the survivor. What do you believe is happening? Uh, what are you afraid of? Do you, you believe that this person will kill you? And then threats to kill and use of weapons. You used a term that I saw a lot of times in the report, and I would like a little clarification of what it means, but you said uh, that these cases will be staffed if they're screened in as high risk. Is that is that when the team meets to go over them? Is that what it means to staff a case? Yes. They meet every Tuesday and Thursday for two and a half to three hours, and they review every single case that's high risk. The challenge for us is there's so many high risk cases in Milwaukee. This team really should be meeting every day. You know, in some jurisdictions many years ago, we saw this model where officers and advocates were reviewing cases every day. The, the high risk team gives us the format. We know it's best practice. 
we really have enough cases where we could be meeting once a day uh, to review the cases. But they meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays for about two and a half to three hours to look at every aspect of the case. Is there a warrant out? Can the, cha the case be charged uh, with additional cases? Um, you know, is there safety we can bring or the client emergency funds we need to use to buy a security system for a client, relocate them if they need that temporarily, all kinds of factors that we're looking at in a case. This report talks about the sort of five years of, uh, you know, existence of this team. And, and from reading the report, you certainly gather there's been some real success because those cases that are making it to the team seem to have been very successful in, in preventing homicide, right? I believe it has. Um, they've, you know, we're the largest urban center using this model. It is being used around the country in different jurisdictions, but Milwaukee is the largest urban center using the high-risk model. We think it's very effective. We think it's best practice. Of the 3,100-plus cases they've reviewed, they lost one life, one client to homicide. One is too many. It was early on uh, when the team began to meet. I think it was before they you know, hit, hit their uh, cadence as a, as a team. And since then, they have not lost any additional lives. So it's, a, we think, a very successful model. As I said, you know, it's underfunded. Um, the DA's office, the Department of Corrections, um, and the Milwaukee Police Department did not receive any additional resources. It's not like we paid for additional officer time or additional district attorneys or um, uh, DOC workers to be part of the team. They all committed existing resources. And, and, you know, I would love to see a day when we can get those resources for this team, Sojourner included, to meet every day. Well, because you talk about, I mean, uh you know, one out of 3,100 cases is statistically remarkable, certainly significant. But at the same time that the team, the cases that have been staffed have been very successful in, in, in you know, preventing homicide, we've still seen an increase in domestic violence homicides. This year, I think the last I saw it was 27, maybe 30, somewhere in that neighborhood of domestic violence and family homicides that are still occurring how do you reconcile those two things? You've got this very successful model, and yet we're still seeing domestic violence homicides happen. So you're right. I'm very cautious about saying, you know, using the word success. I think the model is best practice. I think it represents the work we need to be doing. There's much more we, we can and should be doing, and we're looking to do. So what I would say is, yes, absolutely. We've had 30 domestic violence-related homicides as of today. And we are in a homicide epidemic like I have never seen in my career. When you begin to dive into those cases, you see that many of those um, victims and people who have committed the crimes are not connected. And so that's an opportunity for us as a community to work on outreach and getting people connected. Research shows if people, if people talk to just one person in their life, they're 94% more likely to survive. That's an opportunity for us as a community. If you, if you are isolated, you're more likely to be a victim of homicide. So the most important message for us is talk to someone. If you're hurting someone, talk to someone. If you are being hurt, talk to someone. It doesn't have to be Sojourner. You don't have to call in law, enforce, law enforcement. You can call another program 
but talk to someone in your life. That is the beginning of the end of isolation, and it could save your life. And as a community, we need to, we need to understand the incredible power we have to make a difference. If you see something, say something. There are far too many people who are struggling and suffering in isolation, and we have the power to change that. We can say to people, I love you, but you cannot hurt other people in life. I will help you find resources. Um, uh, you know, be a safe person. If a survivor comes to you and says this is happening, be a safe person. Believe them. Know what the resources are. Memorize the hotline number. Understand what the culturally specific programs are. You have the power to make a difference. I know that you talked about this when the report was released earlier this week, but the importance of getting to people early and connecting them to resources. In some cases, it's just letting them know they exist. Um, what, what, where are some of the challenges right now in, in getting that to happen? I think people are isolated. I think people are afraid. I think there's some distrust between the, some portions of the community. You know, we live in a segregated community in Milwaukee. We need every church, every school, every medical professional, every political leader, everybody thinking about this issue and how it shows up in our lives and what opportunities do we have to open a door. So I think we'll get there. I just think we need um, more partnership, more collaboration. You know, Sojourner, we're looking at things that we're doing. I think our work needs to evolve in addition to the high-risk team meeting every day and getting the resources to do that. We are looking, you know, we've been embedded in the police department since 2006. We've had, had advocates working with police in every jurisdiction in Milwaukee County since 2006. And for us, we believe that work has to evolve to on-scene response. So we're looking about how to evolve that work. We also believe we have to partner with other people differently. And we're starting to examine what would that look like so that people who are isolated have the resources they need. I believe that we need to build an effort street by street and block by block in Milwaukee County to get people connected to resources. As I said, there's two people we're speaking to at all time people who are being hurt and people who are hurting others. So if you're being hurt, it's not your fault, you're not alone and we're here to help. If you're hurting others, I will help you build a bridge to resources. There's help available for you. I think we're in, in a very difficult place. I think that with some hard work, we'll get, uh, we'll get to where we need to get to as a city. I know there's been an effort in recent years to get more law enforcement officers trained in this these kinds of referrals what to, what to say what to what to um you know what to do to get when they see someone who needs this kind of assistance to get them there it looked like there had been I, I don't know that if i was reading this in the in the divert report or if this was just in a sojourner report but there have been some unexpected challenges in that area that seem to have cropped up because of marcy's law which is designed to obviously protect the rights of victims of crime well, what what has happened there that has actually maybe been an unattended barrier to getting victims to resources? So whenever I talk about Marcy's Law, I, want, I feel compelled to say I absolutely believe in victim rights. We already had a victim rights constitutional amendment on the Constitution in Wisconsin. We had a constitutional amendment in place. Marcy's Law added additional rights or some clarification. We're not against that. What we see happening, though, and what was predicted is that it would create barriers to sharing information. So when an officer is on the scene and, I, and they ask, Brian, I'd like to share your information 
with Sojourner, we've had a partnership with them. You have the right to say no, and your information won't be shared. Prior to Marcy's Law, your information would be shared, and if you didn't want to talk with us, we would not call you. You know, we would call and say, we're Sojourner Family Peace Center, we're here to help. Um, and if you said, I don't want to talk to anybody, we'd say, okay, we won't call you, right? You have that right uh, to privacy. Um, but what Marcy's Law has done is it's prevented the sharing of information. And law enforcement believes, and I believe, that it has prevented people from getting connected to resources. And so one of the reasons I think our, our work needs to evolve to unseen is I think there's a difference between asking to share your information and asking if you're willing to talk to someone who's on the scene with you. Plus, I believe if we're on scene during the incident, we're much more likely to, to, to make a connection with you and build better rapport. When you talk about that, I know there's been a lot of discussion uh, around the country uh, and, and here in Milwaukee about um, crisis response teams uh, dealing with mental health issues, going along with the police to be there and have the resource right on scene. Are, are you talking about and uh, in, in, in where are the discussions in having someone who is an expert in domestic violence being there on the scene? Because I can see where if you've got someone who's in a crisis and the crisis is resolved in that moment, there's all so much fear and isolation and other things. They may say, I'm not going to take the next step to go down to 6th and Walnut or to make the phone call. But if someone's right there, more likely to make that connection. What's going on with that? It's the same model, um, Brian, that people are talking about. We did this in District 4 in 2010. There were a string of homicides. There were 10 homicides in District 4 in 2010. And the, and the captain asked Sojourner to come in and do on-scene response. And we did, and we brought the homicide rate down to zero. And we've been trying to evolve to this model since then because we know that it works. We're, we're launching a pilot project in District 2 with MPD. And it's not just about having an advocate on scene. We're talking about bringing a district attorney, the officer, an advocate. And um, something that I think is very unique, we're also talking about bringing in a forensic nurse to the scene so that we can begin to document evidence right away and begin to evaluate for strangulation on the scene. Strangulation, as I said, is so prevalent and so deadly in so many of the cases here in Milwaukee. The sooner we can begin to uh, evaluate that, the better for the person's physical health. So that's the model we want to move towards. Uh, on scene, when I say on scene response, is to have a number of us partnering on scene with your permission, beginning to be build rapport and helping you from the moment the crisis happens. But let me make clear, I would rather live in a world where we're not just relying on law enforcement to intervene in these, in these instances. For every um, you know, homicide or instance of near fatal, there's many opportunities as a community we've missed doctors, pastors, schools, opportunities where we could have opened a door for this person and we didn't and we couldn't. That's where we need to focus, both at the same time. We need these response teams, but we also need you know, robust efforts in our churches, in our schools. We need to be looking around our lives saying, is there somebody who's suffering and hurting? Can I make a difference? Can I build a bridge? 
instead of only relying on law enforcement. We need to do both. It's so interesting you say that, Carmen, because as we're talking, there there may be someone listening here who, who they themselves are not hurting someone or being hurt, but they suspect or they know of someone who is. And for someone who's listening, what, what can they do? What should they do? I'm gar- I guarantee you, you know somebody in your life that's being hurt or someone who's hurting someone. So what I say is there's a couple of simple things. Educate yourself about the issue, some of the warning signs. Educate yourself about the resources. As I said, just memorize the, the hotline number, 414-933-2722. Go on a couple of websites, look at, at resources, Sojourner Family Peace Center, We Are Here Milwaukee, and then make a commitment to be a safe person. I want to launch a project called 10%. If we could get 10%, 100,000 people in the city of Milwaukee, the county of Milwaukee, to take this on as an issue, I think we could turn this city around. We could get 100,000 people to say, I am going to be committed to being a safe person and being a cycle breaker some simple things I'm going to do. I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to build a bridge for people who are hurting or hurting others. I think we could change this city. Last question I want to ask you before we go off the record, and that is this. For those who are listening who may in fact be in a situation where they're being hurt or they are concerned and they don't know where to turn, what what can or should they do right now? First thing I want to say is it's not your fault. What's happening to you should not be happening and it's not your fault. We understand that you're isolated. Um, I want you to know that help is available. Call someone. Call 911 if your life is threatened. Call the Sojourner Hotline. Go to our website or call another program or speak to someone in your life. You, You are worth getting the help you need. If you talk to any survivor, they will say, leaving is hard, but it's worth it. And you deserve the help and support. And it is time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual. We have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And joining us to ask that question is Open Records executive producer Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hi, guys. Hey, Sarah. Um, Hi. So today... The Wisconsin State Fair starts, which is exciting for a lot of people. Um, and we got into a conversation in the investigative office. Oh, I know where this um, is going. <laughs> early Was it earlier this week? I don't even know the days. Uh, probably last week. Anyway, we got to talking about a certain food in particular. But today's question kind of circles around that. So let's talk about your top fair food and like your least favorite fair food, like something that you're like, I'm not going to even spend money on that because I don't care for it. So maybe we start with favorites. So what's your favorite thing at the fair to eat? Carmen, do you want to take this first or do you want to <laughs> oh think about it first? Oh my God. You know, there's so many things. Um, I have a food that I've invented that I'd like to cook at the fair. I'll tell you about, but you know, probably my favorite is, um, those blooming onions, you know, those onions mm, where they yeah. dip it in the, that would probably be, I never would eat that in my life unless I'm at state fair. <laughs> right. Isn't it something that you pass through those gates and suddenly you're like, everything just looks like the best food in the world. Everything, you know, and anything fried. Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say the the to me, I know it's super simple because there's always these creative things they come up with. But to me, it's deep fried cheese curds at the fair. They're yes. hot and fresh. And I just don't think you can do better than that. 
Yeah. I also really enjoy the corn on the cob stand. Mm, yeah. I mean, they take that corn and like just plunge it in the uh, in that vat of butter. Yes, please. <laughs> and then I just salt it like I've never salted anything in my life. I've changed like my some mind. Corn with your butter. Yeah. I, I want the corn. I changed my mind. <laughs> Sarah already knows my answer to this, and which I'll get into in a moment. But but Carmen, do you have a least favorite fair food, or or a one that you're just like, meh? Everyone meh. says that's great, but I'm not so so into that. I can't think of anything. You know, cream puffs, I love them, but I'm like, nah. You know, they're not my favorite sweet thing. Right. I'm saying if I'm gonna do the calories, and I'm gonna if I'm gonna indulge, I, that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm not, I'm I'm veering away from the cream puff. I feel like cream puffs are. Um, they're, they're like the most divisive state fair food because I, I, I think they're a waste of space and I hate to say that because I know that's such a, it's such an iconic state fair thing, but I just think you bite into them and they disappear. It's like eating cotton candy. My son loves cotton candy. I think it's like, it looks big and colorful and then you take a bite and it's just a condensed ball of sugar. Um, I feel that way about cream puffs. So you're right. If it's, if I'm going to spend the money and I'm going to get the calories, I want something that feels like there's more there. Right. When I said I love them, that's what I meant. I love the idea of them. Now, if you could get like cream cheese into the cream. <gasps> yeah, like frosting or so, I don't know. There's got to be something. It's like a, a double stuff bagel. Double stuff everything bagel with as much cream cheese as they put in a cream puff. Now I'd, that's, rather eat a, I'd rather eat a bagel with cream cheese. <laughs> now we're going to have State Fair mad at us about the cream puff. I know, right? Right, right. We just lost all these listeners. But we, can't, we can't let this get by without hearing what this food is you've created. Yeah. What oh, is my this? God. All right. I don't know if I should say because somebody might. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to copyright it right now. August 4th, I make a great potato salad. So my daughter and I thought, you know, what if we take day-old potato salad, make little balls, oh. fry them, deep fry them, and call them tater turds? Oh, what? my gosh. That's actually pretty genius. <laughs> that sounds real smart. I'm putting it out on the air. Copyright. My idea. I'll be at State I... Fair 10 years from now. I like it. If someone else comes out with this, we're checking their internet history to see if they've downloaded <laughs> yes. the podcast because... Doesn't that sound brilliant? I mean, they make stuffing balls. It's, it only makes sense. I mean... You know, I make this great potato salad. It's a Cajun potato salad, my grandmother's recipe. So you'd have to have that. And then, you know, deep fry it. Anything deep fried. And it would stay together because it's starchy. You're taking two great things. It's salty already. So that kind of yes. goes well with the idea of deep frying. Although the fair has proven that it doesn't matter what it is. If you deep fry it, it's probably going to be Shoe leather. <laughs> but you take something like that. That to me sounds, I, I mean, I kind of want to try it. Okay. I'm yeah. going to make some. We'll be over this weekend. <laughs> All right. <laughs> are you, wait, are you serving it with a dipping sauce? Absolutely. Okay, sauce is key. Yes, a Cajun yes, ramelade, some ranch. Oh. All right, wow. that's it. I'm okay. going to have to make some. <sighs> Carmen, I like it. Carmen's tater turds. <laughs> you heard it first here. Carmen's tater turds are going to be a thing. Uh, that's a great way to wrap this up. Carmen, I, I'm so glad that, that you were able to join us, obviously, to talk about an extremely important topic um, and also to have a little bit of fun with us here off the record. Thanks a lot for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss on open record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, please send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. That is fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and by the way, I, I should note, 
Executive producer Sarah Smith and executive director Carmen Petrie. I'm the only one here without executive anywhere in my title. Uh, I, I, I feel jealous. Uh, you can find... Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You can find Open Record wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week.